Well, please go ahead, uh, open your Bibles to the book of Titus. Um, it's been a few weeks since we've been in the book of Titus. We began a series uh, a number of weeks ago um, in the book of Titus, considering how Titus is really a, a blueprint for godliness, a, a blueprint for how we are to be godly people and a godly church. Uh, really, as a church here now just celebrated our, our second year, uh, our second birthday, really considering how this letter would aptly guide us and teach us on how we are to become a godly people and a godly church. And today we're thinking about godly protection. Godly protection, how the church, how the elders of the church, as we thought about last time, are to serve to protect you in your walk with Jesus. So Titus chapter 1, we're in verses 10 to 16 this morning. Uh, Please do have your Bible open in front of you so you can see where these things are coming from. And uh, you can track along as well. Titus chapter 1, verses 10 to 16. Listen to the voice of God. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Let me just pray for the Lord's help as we consider what these things mean for us today. Let's pray. Gracious God, we come to you as those who don't live by bread alone, but by every every word that comes from the mouth of God. Make us hungry for your word in these moments. Make us hungry for this heavenly food. May it nourish us today in the ways of eternal life through Jesus Christ, who is the bread of heaven. In his name we pray. Amen. Once had a conversation with a Christian friend. Uh, We were walking together, and he started to talk to me about some of the things he's been listening to some of the things he's been reading recently that's making him rethink some of the things that he was taught uh, as he grew up in church. I probed a little bit in the conversation and the things that he, were, that he was questioning, that the things he was reading and listening to were causing him to question, question were, were biblical truths, were, were things from the Bible, were things that were held, have been held and believed by Christians for centuries. And at the time, of course, I was kind of taken back. This is my friend. I thought we were on the same page. I love him, of course, but I was taken back. But it shouldn't really have been a surprise to me. It shouldn't really be a surprise to us. Because both inside and outside the church, there are people who will try to persuade us, you and me, that Jesus, the Bible, the Christian faith, is not true. They will try to add things to the Bible or take things away or twist things or say that the whole thing is just a bunch of rubbish. 
All of that has the potential to make people turn their back on Jesus, to turn their back on the Christian faith. It's as true now for you and me in the context that we find ourselves in as it was back then in Crete. Chapter 1, verses 10 to 16, we saw there as we read those verses that some people were, were teaching what they ought not to teach, verse 11, and that it was causing people to turn away from the truth. That explains why a few weeks ago we saw the need for godly elders who hold to the truth, verse 9. Verse 9 really is a really key verse. These two sections go together, the, the section about elders and the section we just read. We need elders, we need leaders who hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Why? Because there are people who will contradict it. There will be people who will teach um, contrary to Scripture and to the gospel. Therefore, we need elders, we need to be a church that holds to the truth. If you're a Christian here this morning, you will, okay, it's a given, you will come across, come up against false teaching. That can harm you. That can tempt you to stray from Jesus. The good news, though, of these verses is that part of God's plan, part of God's means of protecting you is a godly church and godly elders who serve to silence that teaching and rebuke those who are teaching it. As a church, we must strive to be a church that teaches and immerses ourselves in sound doctrine. Sound doctrine is something we see again and again in Titus. It's a non-negotiable. We must be a church that teaches and immerses ourselves in sound doctrine in order to build maturity and discernment into our hearts and into our lives as we seek to follow Jesus. And as a church, we need to be courageous in calling out untruth. And we need to be humble enough to receive sometimes rebuke when we are straying from the truth. That's the kind of people we need to be. Perhaps here this morning you aren't a Christian or you're just new to the Christian faith. And this goes for all of us as well. Not everything that calls itself Christian is Christian. Sadly. Not everything that calls itself Christian is Christian. Not every church that calls itself a church is a true church. That goes for this town, and this, that goes for this world. The invitation of these verses is to come and be warned about the kind of person you should not listen to. To come and see the kind of person you should not listen to in order to know the kind of person you should listen to, the kind of church you should be a part of. Come and see and encounter the truth which can actually change you from the inside out. Here's the big response for you and me this morning from this passage. Get godly protection for the sake of your faith and your godliness. Get godly protection in your life for the sake of your faith and godliness. First thing we see together from these verses, I need, we need godly protection, firstly, from teaching that is false. If you look down at verses 10 to 12, we see in these verses, particularly, but along with this whole section, um, we see the, the reality and the nature of false teaching and teachers. And as we work through this section, just consider, uh, have in mind the, the characteristics that elders are to have, that godly leaders are to have, in comparison to what we see in these verses. The first thing we see in this verse is the capacity of false teachers. Do you see that in verse 10? It's easy to skip past it, for there are many there are many who are insubordinate. We don't know exactly how many, but safe to say this is not just an isolated problem. 
the threat here is significant. It's not just a one lone ranger. That's a warning for us today. And maybe particularly in an age of internet, publishing, blogs, YouTube, TV, false teaching has a high capacity. It's not hard for it to come into our path, to come into our church. It's a significant threat. It's not just this little minor threat on the side. So we mustn't be naive to its presence or to its prevalence in our context. How do we know what's false? So if there is untruth out there, how do we know what the truth is? How do we know what's untrue? Well, we need to know what's true. False teaching will contradict sound doctrine. Verse 9. It contradicts our common faith that we saw in verse 4 previously. It contradicts the clear teaching of the Bible. It contradicts the beliefs, the core beliefs of the Christian faith that have been held for centuries. We know what's untrue by comparing it to this book and comparing it to what Christians have believed for centuries. And we also know what's untrue because it's accompanied by ungodly character. Here's the big thing we're going to see this morning. We can discern false teachers and false teaching because of the fruit that it bears. Titus makes that connection between truth and godliness. He's made that from the beginning. Paul's made that connection between how knowledge of the truth accords with godliness. Therefore, if someone is teaching untruth, it will eventually produce ungodliness. And it does. That's what we see in these verses. We see the capacity of false teachers, and then we see their character. If you look down at verse 10, they're insubordinate. These are people who don't submit to God's word. They struggle to submit to other people. They don't submit to a church. Huge red flag when it comes to false teaching. People who are unable to submit to the Bible, to all of the Bible, and to submit to other people and to the church. Beware anyone who struggles to listen to others, to be corrected by others, and who has a track record of not submitting to others and always having to start their own thing. Beware of those things. They're insubordinate and they're empty talkers. Verse 10. They talk a lot of rubbish, okay? You listen to them, and it kind of sounds good, it's presented well, but they talk a lot of guff. So no substance, it's empty, it's meaningless, it's all bravado, no Bible. It sounds great, but there's no gospel. It was captivating, but there was no call to repentance. Don't be fooled. Just because it's presented well doesn't mean it has any substance to it. They claim here to have the, the equivalent of spiritual steak, but they give you spiritual salads. Okay, not that salads can't be nourishing, right? But salads still leave you hungry. One big sign of false teaching, one big sign that it's empty, is that when life gets tough, it doesn't stand up to scrutiny. When life gets tough, false teaching doesn't stabilize your faith, doesn't give you concrete truths to bank your life on. But their talk is more than just drivel. It's by nature deceptive. We see that also in verse 10. They're empty talkers and they're deceivers. They are out to deceive your soul. They make people think they're Christians when they aren't. Here's why instruction in sound doctrine is so needed. Here's why godly protection is so needed. Because the very nature of false teaching is deceptive. It easily masquerades as other things. It can easily dupe us. 
Let's not be prideful lest we think we can fall. We need sound doctrine. We need godly protection because false teaching is deceptive. And we see the character of false teachers also in verse 11. At the end of verse 11, they teach for shameful gain. They're in it for what they can get out of it, not what they can give. That will eventually become evident. They're in it for what they can get out of it, not what they can give. And they're willing to be dishonest in order to do so. It's not just gain, it's shameful gain. They're willing to be dishonest. Their goal is not to make disciples, it's to make money. It's to gain power and notoriety and a bigger bank balance. And examples of this abound. Churches, teachers, who intentionally twist and compromise the truth of the gospel and God's word in order to get these things. Compare that to the end of verse 7. Do you see what an elder is not to be? Greedy for gain. An elder is not to be greedy for gain. Christians are not to be greedy for gain. We also see the character in verse 12, where Paul uh, quotes what is likely uh, Epimenides of Crete, cleverly quotes one of their own. Okay? He doesn't make the statement himself. He, he takes a quote from one of their own. Their character is this. They are liars. Remember, we have a God who never lies. Verse 2. They're liars. They're evil beasts. They, they behave like animals. And they're not just kind of tame animals. They're evil animals. They're dangerous animals. They are ravenous wolves in sheep's clothing. They're liars. They're evil beasts. And they're lazy gluttons. Do you see there? Their walk doesn't match their talk. It evidences itself in their gluttony and their lack of self-control. Compare that then to elders and Christians who are not to be liars but hold to the truth, who are not to be gluttons but self-controlled and disciplined. And notice too that they reflect, in quoting that uh, description in verse 12, Paul is showing us that these false teachers, they just reflect the world around them. They're no different to the culture around them. Beware anyone who talks and walks like everyone else in this world. True teachers, true Christians will walk differently. They will not be like the rest of the world. So the capacity, the character of false teaching then, what's their content? What are they teaching? Well, they're not teaching the truth. They're teaching what they ought not to teach, as those verses tell us. The truth is what we saw back in verses 1 to 4. It's the truth that Jesus passed on to the apostles, which has been given to us in the Bible. It's the the grace and the the peace, the, the promises and the hope that Paul talked about in verses 1 to 4. We, we aren't 100% certain what exactly is being taught falsely in Crete, but we see indicators in these verses. Verse 10, he talks about the circumcision party. He says that those who are insubordinate, those who are teaching this, are especially those of the circumcision party. That seems like a big part of the problem is likely coming from Jewish converts who were saying, yeah, yeah, you, you can be a Christian by faith in Jesus, but you still have to do these things. You still have to get circumcised. You still have to do these extras, these traditions, in order to really, fully be part of God's people. Circumcision, if you don't know, was a marker, a fleshly marker in the Old Testament that enabled people to be marked out as part of God's people, to be included in God's promises. But it always pointed to the need for a deeper cut, not a cut of the flesh, but a cut of the heart. That's where real change will come about. Romans 2 tells us for 
no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. It always pointed beyond itself. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit and by the letter, not by the letter. So they were teaching these outward practices, these outward rituals. And then verse 14 sheds further light on what it is they're teaching, Jewish myths and the commands of people. So in summary, we could capture what they're teaching here under the banner of legalism. They're teaching legalism. They're teaching added extras, expectations, traditions, in order telling people that they have to follow these things and do these things on top of faith. They are teaching legalism, which leads to licentiousness or lawlessness. It turns out that the circumcision party, far from being holier than now as they appeared to be, really do like to party. They were gluttons. They were lazy. They were disobedient. They were liars. What they show us is that legalism, because it is only concerned about the outward person, the behavior, and doesn't aim for the heart, Legalism looks holy, talks holy, but ultimately produces unholy people. When we think of false teaching, we normally associate it with things like ethics, which, which these are huge things in, in our current culture. Ethics such as gender, sexuality, and marriage. We think of doctrines such as the, the deity of Christ, the fact that he is the son of God. We think about things which undermine the authority and sufficiency of scripture, salvation by grace, we think about the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel, teaching that says if you have enough faith, you'll get healed. Or we think about a lot of false teaching in our time that rejects the nature of God's wrath and the reality of eternal hell. Those things are things we are to be wary of, to be conscious of, to rebuke, to stay away from. But legalism is also a significant problem. And it's often one of the most dangerous because of how subtle it is. It masquerades as being holy and spiritual. Legalism, really, as we've just thought about, is faith plus something equals Jesus, equals being a Christian. It inhibits godliness because it only focuses on the outward. Colossians 2 speaks to this as well. It says, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not touch. Do not taste. Referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings, there's the commands of humans again. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom, an appearance of holiness in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity of the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Legalism reduces godliness down to this. Not drinking, not swearing, reading your Bible every day, going to church, not sleeping around. Legalism looks like I don't drink, but I lose my temper often. I give to the church, but I'm not honest with my taxes. I read my Bible, but I don't love my spouse well. I attend church every Sunday, but I don't actually love and invest in the people of the church during the week. I know sound doctrine, and I can tell you all the false teachers of the day but I rarely, if ever, spend time alone praying to God. Don't hear me wrong. It's not that we don't pursue morality, okay? It's not that we don't have commandments to obey. To obey. The opposite of legalism is not lawlessness. 
The antidote to legalism, though, is grace. Grace-fueled obedience. Grace which gets to the heart and gives us a new heart, enabling us to obey from a true heart, a heart that, as we thought a number of weeks ago, that loves God and loves neighbor. That's the, the source of real obedience, of true righteousness. It's the kind of grace that we see in Titus 2, verses 11 to 15, if you look down with me. Here's the grace, here's the good news, here's the, the gospel, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Do you see that? Grace comes first. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself. He purifies us. We can't purify ourselves. He must do it first. And in his strength, we live pure lives. To purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. That's what we need God to do in our lives. That's what grace is. Jesus saving us. Jesus redeeming us. Jesus giving us hope. Jesus purifying us. Grace gives us new hearts that love. Grace teaches us to ask, how can I love? As opposed to, what is the least I can do? That's the language of legalism. Legalism says, what's the least I can do? Or how much must I do? Grace says, how can I love? Grace causes us to ask, what can I give? as opposed to how much is enough to tick the box. That's the content of false teaching. What are the consequences of false teaching? And here's where we need to be warned. False teaching, as you see in those verses, upsets whole families. And the word upset there isn't talking about tearful, kind of sad. The word behind that is the same word that's used to describe how Jesus overturned the tables in the temple. It destroys families. It overturns. It disrupts. Could be speaking about families in a literal sense, in a blood sense, but also may refer to house churches, house church families throughout Crete. Either way, the teaching is destructive. What does a false teaching lead to? It upsets whole families and it leads to unsound faith and it leads to people turning away from truth. That is why verse 11 says they must be silenced because of the devastating consequences. That they must be silenced, must, tells us that this is urgent. It's necessary. Silence tells us, don't debate it. Let's not have a, a conversation about it. These people need to be muzzled now. With the end goal of being restored back to the faith. We're going to see that in a moment. We don't just shut people up and silence them without grace or without the goal of restoration. So, beware the reality of false teachers. Identify them by their ungodly character and know them by their fruit. It will eventually, if not immediately, be obvious. Heed the consequences of their teaching. Be discerning. Keep your distance. They can devour and destroy. These are not things to be played with. Protect yourself. Protect your family. Protect this church family. 
by building the Bible into one another's heart. I love that phrase from Claire Ferguson. I've heard him use that phrase a number of times. Build the Bible into your heart in order to be discerning, in order to be able to identify false teaching. Immerse yourself in sound doctrine. It takes hard work. It must be done. Protect yourself by being in a church that teaches sound doctrine and silences unsound doctrine. And be a church where everyone takes responsibility for that. We're about to see next week in chapter 2 how everyone, the elders lead and they shepherd in that regard, but everyone in the church is to be sound in the faith and to be teaching sound doctrine. And let me say this too. Be discerning to what is taught in this church, to what is taught from here, to what is taught in conversation, to what is taught in small group. Yes, you should be able to get to a place where you can trust your leaders. But let's not slip into a place of just assuming. Let's not get to a place where we stop searching the scriptures. Galatians 1 verse 8, Paul says this to the Galatians. He says, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. He's humbly saying there, you should be listening carefully to what I'm saying and searching the scriptures. If it's contrary to the true gospel, let him be accursed. Let's be aware of legalism. Let's be aware of adding unbiblical expectations or traditions onto one another in a way that promotes salvation by works rather than by grace. And let me graciously say this as well. Let's not be naive to the context in which we live and the context in which we seek to spread the gospel. Untruth is everywhere. It's good to assume the best. It's good to be optimistic. It's good to be generous. But let's not be naive. We can't afford to be. The call here is not so much to be suspicious of everyone, okay? This is not to hold everyone at arm's length and never talk to anyone. It's not to be suspicious of everyone. It's to be sharp. It's to be sharp and discerning. We need to be aware and not naive so that we would not be easily discouraged but endure because... What happens when your friend or someone you know or a church you love turns away from the truth? You can be easily discouraged, right? We shouldn't be naive to the fact that these things can happen, sadly. And by not being naive to these things, it will help us to endure. It may unsettle us, but it shouldn't surprise us. By God's grace, may that not be true of us. And on the flip side of that, we should also be encouraged and expectant that just like on the island of Crete, God can save and transform anyone. God can save and pull anyone from these things. You, you see that in this, in this letter, even though the, the Cretans are described in this way, obviously with a broad brushstroke. Paul, Titus are expectant that people are being saved, have been saved, will be saved, that the kind of people that need to be elders can be identified. This is not impossible. We should be not naive to our context, but we should also be optimistic and encouraged that even liars and evil beasts and lazy gluttons can be transformed by God. Let us lead with, when we think about false teaching and are seeking to be discerning, let us lead with the gospel and godliness, okay? Notice that Titus doesn't start the letter in verse 10. He doesn't start pessimistically Hey, what's going on over there in Crete? Get yourselves in order. 
see all those guys over there? They're spreading false teaching. Point them out. Rebuke them. Silence them. No, what does he start with? He starts with verses 1 to 4. He starts with the good news. And then he shows us what godliness looks like. Verses 5 to 9. Let us be the same. Let us major on those things. Let us start with those things. Let us emphasize those things. Whilst there is a place for silencing and rebuking and calling out false teaching and teachers, let us be a church, a people that is known primarily for what we are for, not what we are against. Sometimes we will have to be clear on what we are against, okay? But let us not be people who are primarily known for what we are against, but what we are for. Let us be known primarily as heralders of hope, not heresy hunters who find faults and flaws in everyone but ourselves. It's so easy to get into that. Let's not be like that. Let's the, let the dominant tone of our ministry and our conversations and our culture, both inside and in church, be about the, the hope that we have. Maybe just a last word to say on these verses for those who have been affected by false teaching. Don't beat yourself up about what you didn't discern. Don't beat yourself up about what you didn't discern at the time. Focus on detoxing yourself by immersing yourself in sound doctrine. Read your Bible. Get into a small group. Sit under sound teaching. Read sound books. Ask questions. Be patient with yourself. Okay? Don't beat yourself up. Be patient with yourself and those who have been exposed to false teaching. Know that detoxing takes time and we need room to figure things out. Let's show grace to one another. Know that your time under those kind of influences is not wasted time. The Lord in his providence works all things for good. Learn from it. Trust him to bring good from it. And, and this goes for all of us, be humble enough to be corrected in what you believe. That goes for you and me, for all of us, whether we've sat under good teaching our whole lives or unsound teaching. Correction is necessary for the health of your faith and for the health of the church. That's what we see next. I need godly protection from teaching that's false for the sake of sound faith. If you look down at verses 13 to 14, this testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. So in light of what's being taught and its impact on the church, the elders must respond by silencing and now rebuking. To rebuke is to expose, it's to convict, it's to correct. Who is to be rebuked here? Well, we could maybe think of two groups of people. There are those who are teaching falsely, but also in mind maybe those who have been influenced by that teaching, who've begun to go along with it, whether knowingly or naively. As we think about rebuking, ultimately, this is a work of the Spirit. So we are to be bold and courageous in this task, but ultimately we need to pray for the Spirit to work in people's hearts and lives. We're to rebuke and we're to do it sharply. Okay, kind of maybe text you back as you read that. Rebuke sharply, what does that mean? It doesn't mean we do it angrily. It communicates urgency, robustness, clarity, and forthrightness. Don't dance around the issue. We make sure that when we've had the conversation in grace, in love, that the person walks away with no doubt as to the seriousness of the teaching and the consequences of continuing to follow it. Maybe a few other things to add to sharply from the New Testament. 
which are rebuked sharply, but were to do it with patience. First Thessalonians 5, we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. So we're to rebuke, we're to do it sharply, but we must show patience in that. We're also to do it with gentleness and a reliance on God for change and repentance and response. Second Timothy 2, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Rebuke sharply, do it with patience, do it with gentleness, and do it with a reliance on God to turn things around. In this scenario, it's rebuking those who are wayward. We thought a, a while back recently with our small groups about a number of pastoral scenarios that we might encounter. Rebuking is one of them, but others may include we teaching and instructing people when they're ignorant. So if people are straying uh, and they're, they're following things they shouldn't, we first assume that maybe they're just ignorant. Maybe they just haven't been taught. So first protocol is to teach and instruct those who are ignorant. But if people have been taught and they should know better, that's when we move towards rebuking and admonishing. And sometimes people are just faint-hearted. They're just discouraged. In that case, we encourage or comfort. So there's wisdom. What I'm trying to say here, there's wisdom when it comes to these things. Not everyone is deliberately wayward. Not everyone is deliberately following false teaching. We must show wisdom in that. But when we have taught and we have spoken sound doctrine into someone's life and they are willingly straying, we must rebuke and admonish where they're wayward. Not that long ago, uh, Joseph figured out how to undo his seatbelt in the car. First time he does that, you teach him, okay? He doesn't know that that's a dangerous thing. Teach him, hey, don't do that. Wait till the car stops because it's for your own safety. He does it a second time. Maybe the teaching's a little bit more clear and forthright. He does it a third time. It becomes a rebuke. It becomes a sharp rebuke. Why? Because it may cost him his life. That's what's going on here. You and I are to rebuke. Why? We'll look at the end of verse 13. That they may be sound in the faith. Here's the thing. Rebuke does not aim for humiliation. This is not about being in the right and humiliating one another and getting the better of someone. The aim is restoration and sound faith. That's what this is about. And the word sound there, sound faith, the word sound, it may actually be a footnote in your Bible uh, from a previous verse. The word sound speaks to being healthy. You want your faith to be healthy, it may mean being rebuked or rebuking others. So our desire for one another is not just that we should have faith, but our faith should be healthy. Therefore, we rebuke one another because we care enough about one another. We want one another not to be spiritually sick, but to be spiritually healthy. That's why we both rebuke and are rebuked. So be in a church that will rebuke false teaching. Be in a church that will rebuke sin. Be in a church that cares enough about your faith to rebuke you when you stray from the truth. Here's a big one, okay? And in a culture maybe where we shy from confrontation, I'm speaking to myself here, be a person who is willing to courageously rebuke. We need a category for that. 
We need to be willing to courageously rebuke one another in gentleness, in love, with patience, and reliance on the Lord. But we need to be willing in those conversations with wisdom and with grace. Sometimes the conversation has to be, that's not helpful. That's not true. Have you considered that? What does God's word have to say about that? If we care enough about one another's spiritual health, if we care more about what God thinks than what people think of us, because that's how, why so often we shy away from these conversations, we will rebuke sharply. And on the flip side of that, be a person who's willing to be rebuked, to receive it humbly, to consider even sometimes if it's not fair or it's not true, right? To consider if there's a kernel of truth in there, if there's something to be learned and gleaned from that, and to receive rebuke humbly and to act on it. You'll do that when you care about being sound in faith and not about appearing to be right and righteous and godly. What happens when someone doesn't respond? Well, the Bible lays out clear process for restorative church discipline as outlined in Matthew 18. Someone strays into sin or they stray into false doctrine, we confront them one-on-one, then two-on-one, then we tell it to the church. And then if they don't listen to the church, we count them as a Gentile and a tax collector. We treat them as an unchristian. Again, with the goal and the desire that they would come back, that that would wake them up to the strain and the false teaching. Without protection and rebuke, we will get spiritually sick and become unfit for godliness, which is the goal, remember? Without protection and rebuke, we will get spiritually sick and become unfit for godliness. Godly protection can avoid that. As we see in these final verses, in verses 15 to 16, I need godly protection from teaching that is false for the sake of sound faith and to produce real godliness. You look down at verses 15 to 16. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. So we've seen the commands of people, untruth, legalism, cannot really change us. It cannot clean us. Verse 15 says, to the pure, that is the pure in heart. That is those who have been given a new heart. To them, all things are pure. That is ritually pure. See, what's, been, what's happening here is that the circumcision party are saying, you must do outward things to be pure, to be clean. You can only eat certain kinds of food. You have to wash your hands a certain number of times before you eat in order to be spiritually clean. We see this in places like Mark 7 and Matthew 23. Mark 7 says, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who come from Jerusalem, they saw some of his disciples with their hands. Okay, so they're eating with their hands. The Pharisees say, you guys are defiled. You haven't washed your hands. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. There's the commands of men. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions they observe, such as the washing of cups, pots, vessels, and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of elders, commandments of people? but eat with defiled hands. He said to them, well did Isaiah prophesy of you, you hypocrites. The people honors me with their lips, 
but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. So verse 15 is saying if you are pure in heart, if you're converted, if you're saved, if you've been given a new heart, it doesn't matter what you eat. It doesn't make a difference. You, can, you can't make yourself clean by what you eat. But if you're impure in heart, in verse 15, if you're not converted, if you don't have a new heart, if you're not changed, you are defiled and unbelieving, then nothing is pure to you. What that means is, it doesn't matter how much you wash your hands, it doesn't matter how much kosher food you eat, you could eat kosher food, till it's coming out your ears, it will not purify you. It will not clean you. Because verse 15, your mind and your conscience are defiled. That's not real godliness. Real godliness is not washing your hands and doing these certain things and eating certain foods. You need the gospel and you need grace. Only the gospel and grace can clean you and change you from the inside out. Only the gospel can give you a renewed mind and a clear conscience. You see how legalism, untruth, limits godliness because it doesn't get to the heart. The grace of the gospel does. It can change things. It can change us from the inside out. It can produce real godliness. Not like the kind of godliness we see in verses 15 to 16. That's why false teaching is so dangerous. It's not just up here. It's not just false up here. It infects us like a disease and will not change us. It will leave us ungodly. Verse 16 tells us that we can easily be deceived and end up in a place where we profess to know God, which is easy. But the reality is our lives aren't changed. Verse 16 is a warning that it's possible to profess God, which, yes, I know in our culture is becoming harder and harder, but compared to other parts of the world, it's still relatively easy, right? It's it's not that hard, really, to come here and sit on a Sunday morning and say you believe in God. Verse 16 warns us that it's possible to profess God, yet deny that by our lives. Sometimes that's really obvious, like the detestable disobedience in verse 16. Sometimes it's much more subtle. Sometimes it's much less obvious. We play the game. We come to church. We take the boxes. But the reality is that we are inwardly defiled and unfit for any good work. We can sit here every Sunday, but slowly we are becoming more and more unfit. We're becoming more and more spiritually sick. So don't make assumptions about yourself. Don't make assumptions about the person sitting next to you. I sat, you've probably sat next to, been friends with, had family members who professed to know God, on the outside seemed to be clean, they're churchgoers, but then later on it comes to light that behind the scenes they're getting drunk, they're sleeping around, and they're not living for God. To those people, we would say, there is much grace for you. We all need grace. There is forgiveness. Jesus can change you. We don't think we're better than you. But beware becoming that person. A little legalism can be lethal. Make sure you know the truth. Make sure you know grace. For only it can provide us with a clear conscience and a changed life. 
Here's the big takeaway from these verses. Untruth leads to ungodliness compared to the truth that leads to godliness. Untruth leads to ungodliness. Truth leads to godliness. That's why the truth matters. That's why we need protected from untruth. That's why we need sound doctrine. That's why sound faith matters. This is no academic exercise. False teaching, unsound doctrine, destroys lives. You need protection. I need protection. We need godly protection for the sake of our faith and godliness. Godly protection that keeps pointing us to the grace of Jesus. Jesus, as chapter 2 verse 14 tells us, Jesus who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Let me pray for us. Father, we come to you as those who are prone to wonder. Father, we come to you as those who recognize that we are often weak and tempted. Father, we come to you as those who need to acknowledge that we haven't figured it out. We haven't got it all sorted. So we come to you in dependence, praying, asking, crying out to you that you would show us the gospel of of grace every day of our lives, that you would embed that in our hearts and in our minds, that you would surround us with people who would do that for us and that we would do that for one another, that you would equip us and guard us to be discerning of false teaching. Father, that you would help us to be a bold people, a courageous people, who in love and in grace and in gentleness rebuke false teaching sharply and silence it. Father, help us not to be cowardly. Help us to be courageous. Please, Father, guard this church, guard our lives, guard our families from anything that would take us away from Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Can we can stand for the word.